What do you want to call me a murderer for? I've never killed anyone. I don't need to kill anyone. I think it. Believe me, if I started murdering people, there'd be none of you left. <laughs> Hello friends and enemies, and welcome to a new full-length episode of Exploring Evil. Some stories are twisted, some demented, all evil. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button, and if you like the show, give us a 5-star review. You can email questions, comments, and case suggestions to exploringevil at gmail.com. And I urge you to not just listen, but become a part of the show. Word of mouth goes a long way, so tell all of your friends and enemies about Exploring Evil. Imagine a beautiful life cut short, literally, by a monster who chose a vibrant young woman with her whole life ahead of her to be his next victim. You see a woman stumble from the apartment next door, soaked in blood, with only a bikini top pulled up over her shoulders, unable to scream for the help she so desperately needed because her throat was cut so badly she was nearly decapitated. Then you see a man, no, a monster, fleeing from the same apartment the girl had come from. He jumps into his convertible, tires screech as he speeds away. This is the case of Mary Fleming and the beast who took her from her family, her boyfriend, and the world. Tonight, Exploring Evil looks at the case of Mary Fleming, an absolutely beautiful 18-year-old woman with hopes and dreams who called St. Charles, Missouri home. Hey there, Exploring Evil fans. I want to take a second to tell you about my other podcast. It's a little different. It's called Cryptique, and it covers the paranormal, hidden history, forbidden knowledge, and even conspiracy theories. It's a show where my partner Ryan and I try to get to the bottom of some of the most interesting stories out there. Our first episode covered the phenomena of the black-eyed kids, and we just wrapped up a show on true stories of feral children. We also have interviews and a few scripted shows sprinkled in. If you're looking for a change of pace, Give Cryptique a listen. The truth is out there. And now back to Exploring Evil. St. Charles is a suburb of St. Louis and sets around 30 miles west of the city. It is generally considered a safe place to live to this very day, and especially on that fateful day of July 25, 1980. Mary Fleming lived in an apartment in St. Charles with her sister and mother, but was planning on going to college in the fall. She was the baby of the family with seven siblings. Her older brother Dennis described Mary Michelle, affectionately called Mickey, as the diamond in the coal pile of her family. Her friend, Tracy Kipper, described her as smart, funny, and daring. Her apartment sat adjacent to a grocery store. It was a bright sunny day. But as we've seen with other cases, darkness lurks even in the sunshine. 
Mary's mother left for work around 6.30 a.m., and Mary's sister left shortly thereafter. Her mother locked the back door on the way out, and when her sister left for work, Mary was still asleep. Around 10.30 a.m., Mary decided to go to the grocery store and cash a check so she could buy some groceries. She was last seen walking back to the apartment, groceries in hand, in a bikini top and cut-off jean shorts. She had flowing golden blonde locks that rolled down her back and a bronzed hand. She would catch anyone's eye. Unfortunately, she caught the attention of a grisly serial killer. The man circled the complex slowly, like an animal stalking its prey. But the car made him stand out as well, and he too caught people's eye, though not for the same reasons Mary did. He looked normal enough, light-colored pants and a button-up shirt, dressed like he was going to a job interview. Certainly not the monster we see in our nightmares. But on the inside, he was as ugly as one can get. No witnesses saw him enter the scene of the crime, but it was obvious that Mary was attacked in her apartment. Around 11 a.m., he was seen fleeing the scene of the crime. He sprinted to his convertible, which was parked in the grocery store parking lot. An extremely valuable eyewitness described the man running through the parking lot as a white male in his 30s, average build, with collar-length blonde hair. She even described his car but didn't get a plate number. At the same time, a couple who lived behind and across the street from Mary saw a sight that would haunt their nightmares forever. Mary was running from her apartment towards them. She was painted in blood and naked with the bikini top pulled up around her neck and shoulders. She was incapable of screaming because her throat was cut from ear to ear and she was almost decapitated but she did manage to whisper, help me. I can't imagine having enough will to get away to be able to run with the injuries Mary had suffered. Who knows how many lives she saved by helping to get this sadistic killer off the streets. Not only had she almost been decapitated, but she had been stabbed in the heart and lung, and another time in her other lung. The autopsy showed that the second stab that went through her heart into a lung had left the tip of the knife in her lung. She had bruises and numerous defensive cut wounds on her forearms and hands. She collapsed on the neighbor's front porch in a pool of blood. Police and paramedics arrived quickly, but there was no hope for Mary. The damage was too great. Her official cause of death was attributed to the knife wound to Mary's heart. Police quickly established Mary's apartment as the crime scene, and the evidence showed that Mary had put up a valiant fight for her life. Mary's jean cutoffs were found in a bloody mess, and her underwear was nearby spattered in blood. Her blood and hair were found stuck to walls and a coffee table, and a huge pool of blood lie on the floor. It looked like something out of a horror film. There was a trail of blood leading to and out the back door where Mary had fled the scene. Eggs were still boiling on the stove in anticipation of a salad for lunch, indicating Mary had been taken by surprise. Police noted that her purse was still closed, though also covered in blood, 
and had money in it presumably left over from the check Mary had cashed just a short time before the incident. Brian Fleming, one of Mary's older brothers, called the apartment when crime scene investigators were processing it and was told to get a hold of his mother and go directly to the emergency room where the family learned the devastating news. St. Charles detectives had a berserk murderer on the loose in their town and desperately needed a break. Detective Mike Harvey said there was immense pressure from the community to quickly apprehend the killer. Until then, no one felt safe. There was only so much they could do with the evidence on hand. Remember, this was before DNA matching was even a thing. Police learned that Mary had been receiving obscene phone calls from someone who knew her nickname was Mickey and claimed to know her bra size. She had mentioned to friends and family that she thought they were coming from someone she knew named Michael. Police tracked Michael down, and when he was informed of Mary's murder, he responded callously with, Oh, really? This didn't sit well with the police, and they saw it as a red flag. Police also noticed and collected a lockback knife which appeared to have blood on it. It turned out that the crime lab tested the knife, and it wasn't blood on it. Michael was also able to provide a verifiable alibi as his boss said he was at work at the time of the slaying. The only lead they had left was that a white male was seen fleeing the scene in a cream-colored Buick convertible. But that was enough. The car stood out, and a man named Richard Roberson was feeling the heat because his car matched the description. A local body shop employee had been paying attention to the news and took notice when a man with a cream-colored Buick convertible visited the shop and said he needed his car painted today and didn't care what color. The employee provided police with the man's name, Richard Roberson. Officer Pat McCarrick knew Richard Roberson and paid him a visit. At first, Roberson gave an alias and wouldn't even admit who he was. But McCarrick stayed cool and said he knew a guy that looked a lot like him named Richard Roberson, who had part of his left ear bit off in a fight, just like him. Then Roberson came clean and admitted who he was. Now Roberson knew he hadn't done anything wrong, but he wasn't so sure about his shady friend that had been staying with him at the time. Anthony Joseph Lorette had been staying with Richard Roberson at the time of the vicious slaying and Roberson had let Lorette borrow his car on the day in question. You guessed it, for a job interview. But when Lorette picked Roberson up later that day, the khakis and button-up shirt had been replaced with an old t-shirt and cut-off jean shorts. Roberson noted that he never saw those, quote, job interview clothes again. On Sunday the 27th, Roberson used that very convertible to drive Lorette to his parents' house in Topeka, Kansas. By the following Tuesday, Roberson was so concerned about his vehicle being mentioned on the news and in the newspaper articles that he called Lorette at his parents' house to question him about his involvement in the murder. Roberson recalled that when he dropped Lorette off, Lorette told him, quote, if you have any problems down there, call me, and I'll take care of them. Roberson was a little puzzled by the statement, but brushed it off. 
On the phone call, Roberson said Lorette was reluctant to talk about things over the phone. But later phone calls revealed that Lorette admitted to killing the girl, but said he didn't know why he'd done it. Lorette said he'd first noticed the girl cashing the check at the grocery store and had followed her back to her apartment. He also said he went to the apartment to burglarize it, but Mary had walked in on him, which is obviously contradictory to his previous statement. Lorette said he didn't know why he killed the girl, but later said Mary started yelling and tried to run. Roberson had agreed to let detectives look through the car and the room where Lorette stayed when at his house after McCurick told him he could be a witness or a defendant and might not see his seven-year-old son until he was a grown man. As luck would have it, Lorette made a phone call to Roberson when police were at his house. Roberson's wife answered the phone and quietly told Roberson it was Lorette and he wanted to speak to him. What Lorette didn't know is that a St. Charles detective was listening in on the conversation from another phone in the Roberson house. The detective heard Lorette say he threw the knife he used in the river, presumably the Missouri River which runs through St. Charles. The murder weapon was a stiletto blade lockback knife. This was enough for police to get an arrest warrant for Lorette. Roberson told police on previous calls, Lorette also said he struck the girl and knocked her down, stabbed her, and cut her throat as she tried to run away. Lorette told several different stories, but this one lines up best with the evidence. But I don't believe for a second he had any intention aside from raping and killing this young girl, and she proved to be too much for him to handle. Lorette also said he was going to lie low and avoid his parents' house for about a month until he said, quote, the heat was off. I guess Lorette must have thought that Richard Roberson was as big of a piece of shit as he was. And Roberson wasn't a great guy, proven by him trying to conceal his involvement and his lengthy record, which included weapons violations. St. Charles Police worked with authorities in Topeka to try to track Lorette down and when they finally did, he was in an emergency room. Apparently, Lorette had made a half-hearted attempt at slashing his own throat, resulting in superficial wounds. But St. Charles detectives wouldn't get a crack at an interview or interrogation of Lorette until August 7th at the Shawnee County Jail in Topeka, Kansas. Officers read Lorette his Miranda rights and had him sign an initial, a printed form advising him of all of his constitutional rights, which would come into play later. Apparently, Lorette was unaware that detectives had listened in on his phone conversation with Roberson because he tried to feed them a story of how he actually wasn't the murderer and was actually a hero who tried to save Mary's life. Lorette told investigators, quote, I'm responsible for her death. He said he picked up a hitchhiker near Roberson's house who asked Lorette to take him to a girl's house who owed him some money. The hitchhiker had him park at the grocery store lot next to Mary's apartment. The hitchhiker got out of the car and went to the apartments. Lorette waited in the parking lot for about 15 minutes and then got worried about the hitchhiker. What a swell guy. 
Hey Exploring Evil fans, just a quick PSA. If you're considering getting a dog or cat or even a rabbit, I highly suggest adoption. All of my dogs, Domino, Nacho, and Gizmo, are rescues. Buying a dog may help puppy mills stay in business, but when you adopt, you get a friend for life. Shelters often have purebred dogs as well, and there are rescues for specific breeds like Golden Retrievers and Dachshunds. Remember that mixed breed dogs often get the best genes from each parent and aren't as prone to breed specific problems, so please consider adoption. Lorette said he went to the front door of the apartment and looked in and the hitchhiker was standing or bending over a girl and she was covered in blood. Lorette said the girl was covered in blood and was pleading for her life. The hitchhiker saw him and ran out the front door of the apartment when Lorette entered. He said the girl's throat was cut, but he wasn't too worried because she wasn't gurgling. You've got to love this guy's medical knowledge. He wasn't too worried about her throat being cut. But Lorette said he was worried about the stab wounds to her chest, so he applied direct pressure to her chest to stop the bleeding. He was worried about her, just not enough to call 911. He said Mary started fighting him, broke away, and ran out the back door. That part I believe. He had her blood all over his hands and was scared, so he ran out the front door, presumably to his friend's car, and sped away. Police released information that there was a bloody palm print by the front door, and Lorette knew he had to account for his print in blood at the crime scene. What they didn't say is that it was actually Mary's palm print. Pretty sneaky, huh? He may as well have said the butler did it. I know, I know. Don't pick up hitchhikers. But by this time, the detective's bullshit detector was going off the chart. Later, a sheriff was advising Lorette of his extradition rights, and he blurted out, I tried to choke her first, but I couldn't. She promised not to scream, but she lied to me. I caused an 18-year-old to die. Now that's what I call victim blaming. You expect an 18-year-old girl who you're choking to death not to scream, so you slash her throat and it's somehow her fault? But the victim blaming would continue. Lorette was extradited to St. Charles that day and was interviewed again. He was, again, advised of his Miranda rights and again signed a written waiver allowing him to be interviewed. He again reverted to the hitchhiker story. Lorette told detectives he took the hitchhiker to Mary's apartment, but this time said he went to the front door and saw the hitchhiker kneeling or lying on the girl, and the hitchhiker's pants were down, presumably implying the hitchhiker was attempting to rape Mary, and there was blood all over the girl. He told detectives that the hitchhiker ran out the back door. They gave him enough rope to hang himself. They told Lorette a 15-year-old girl had seen him prowling the apartment complex and identified him by the police composite sketch and by the vehicle. She said he passed her at least three times and gave her a strange look when he passed. Officers also pointed out that witness statements contradicted his story and he, Lorette, was seen circling the apartment complex in his convertible, and that the witnesses didn't see anyone but Mary run out the back door. Then, the moment of truth. Lorette began crying and said there was no hitchhiker, I did it. 
Finally, this monster takes responsibility for his heinous act. Or did he? He told detectives his intent was to burglarize the apartment and came through the back door which was unlocked. What gets me is, he saw Mary Fleming. He stalked Mary Fleming. If he had only wanted to burglarize the place, why would he go into an apartment that had people inside? I suppose he just randomly picked an apartment that just happened to have a beautiful blonde-haired 18-year-old girl alone inside. He's just lucky, I guess. According to Lorette, he checked downstairs, and when he came back upstairs, there she was. A pretty young girl. And the kicker was, she had already taken off her shorts. I guess some people just boil eggs and chop up lettuce for a salad in just a bikini top with no bottoms on. Now my bullshit meter is blowing up. Lorette said he had the knife, grabbed her, and told her he didn't want to hurt her. He told her not to scream. He just wanted to get the hell out of there. Lorette said Mary agreed not to scream, and he let her go. He said she started to scream, and that's when it happened. Lorette said, she lied to me. She promised she wouldn't scream. Lorette said she was just like all the others. I'm sure that set off alarm bells for the detectives. Lorette continued, my wife and my mother-in-law always lied to me. If she hadn't lied to me, it wouldn't have happened. Lorette then told detectives he basically blacked out and didn't remember what happened after that. Now, I'm no detective, but I'm sure you're all connecting the dots the same as I am. This is what it looks like to me. Lorette borrows his friend's fancy convertible and dresses up real nice-like. He thinks he's a ladies' man, and he goes out on the prowl. But Lorette is a psychopath and a sexual predator. He creeps on a 15-year-old girl but decides it's too risky. Then he sees this gorgeous blonde-haired 18-year-old girl dressed in a bikini top and short shorts, and he can't help himself. He lurks around the grocery store and follows her out to the parking lot. He sees that she walks by herself to the apartment complex next to the grocery store, so he slithers around the neighborhood until he sees what apartment she goes into. Like I said, St. Charles is pretty safe, so she leaves her door unlocked, and that's when he makes his move. He's not interested in burglary. He's interested in Mary. He's got his knife, premeditation. He barges in and probably does tell her not to scream. But he doesn't want to get the hell out of there like he said. He wants to rape her. She fights like hell and she's too much for him. He slashes at her and stabs her repeatedly, but she still fights. He cuts her throat to eliminate a witness, but she still gets away. You've got to love Mary's will to live. She runs out the back, and he runs out the front. She drew enough attention for others to take notice and make sure this heathen didn't get away with it. Thank God witnesses saw him slinking around and fleeing the scene, or he may have gotten away with it. But was this preventable? Let's take a look at Lorette's arrests and convictions prior to this murder. 1972, Topeka, Kansas. Lorette was arrested for pocket picking and sentenced to serve one to four years in Kansas Department of Corrections. 1974, Lawrence, Kansas. Lorette was arrested, 
convicted of rape and burglary, and was sentenced to serve 5 to 20 years in Kansas Department of Corrections. Well, if he had served 20 years, Mary would still be alive. In my opinion, rape is not much better than murder, and some of the rape sentences I've read about absolutely disgust me. It's not like a woman was a little tipsy and then regretted sleeping with him. He broke into her house and raped her. By the way, there are some people here in the good old USA serving life sentences for marijuana. The same pot you can go buy at dispensaries for personal use and get prescriptions for because you have anxiety. And I have no problem with it being legal, but I do have a problem with a violent serial rapist who served two years. 1976, sentenced to serve six months on bond default. 1978, unknown charge. Lorette was sentenced to serve one to ten years in Kansas Department of Corrections, but the judge suspended the sentence and ordered five years of probation instead. Well, if he had served even three years of that sentence, Mary would still be alive. Now, it's possible that he provided information on other crimes and worked out a deal for the probation, but there's more. A lot more. While on death row, Lorette couldn't stop talking about all the people he'd killed. 1976, Marathon, Florida. Lorette was charged with murder, but never tried for the slaying of Jeanette Wade. He provided details that closed the books on two murders in St. Petersburg and one in the Florida Keys, as well as providing information on two to three other murders. In Arkansas, he allegedly raped, beat, and left for dead a high school girl who thankfully survived. In Colorado and Illinois, he provided details of two murders. In Louisiana, he told police he killed people in Morgan City, Hoama, and Grand Isle. In Mississippi, he confessed to two murders in Biloxi. In Nebraska, he provided details of a murder. In Texas, he provided information on single murders in Dallas and Houston. In Virginia, he told police he murdered a woman alongside an interstate highway. By the way, he wasn't confessing out of guilt or remorse. He just wanted to keep his head off the chopping block as long as he could. Just how many people did this monster kill? Well, at least 12, and authorities believe it could have been as many as 30. How many lives could have been saved if he'd been in prison for 20 years from 1974 to 1994? Well, at least Mary would still be with us. She could have been a nurse, a mother, a teacher, really anything she wanted to be. How many lives would she have touched? How many lives did she save while sacrificing her own? She is a hero. Dennis Fleming said there were no more family gatherings after the murder, and the family suffered irreparable damage. He wrote a book called She Had No Enemies, where he reflects about how his life was changed. But there is good news. Anthony Joseph Lorette will never bring harm to anyone again. Missouri got it right and sentenced him to death, and he was executed on November 29, 1995. Dennis Fleming watched him die. Of course, there were all the legal battles and appeals for clemency. He said he suffered multiple head injuries. He was mentally ill. He had ineffective counsel. 
which every death penalty case says they have ineffective counsel. His case didn't meet the criteria for execution because there was no aggravating factors, which include depravity and torture. But the court said that the aggravating factor was torture due to the fact that Mary Fleming had time to realize she was going to die. Mary embodied the spirit of youth, of courage, of freedom, the same spirit I see in my daughters. If it could happen to her, it could happen to anyone. So watch out for creeps, trust your instincts, if you see something, say something. And I'm not sure how to fix it, but I know our system is broken. So that's it for tonight's episode of Exploring Evil. Don't forget to tell a friend, give us a 5 star rating, and check out my other podcast on the paranormal. It's called Cryptique, and you can find it everywhere you find Exploring Evil. If you have a question, comment, or case suggestion, you can email us at exploringevil at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.